0: Amen. God bless you guys. Thank you so much. Good morning. Good morning. It's good to see the healthy in church this morning. If you look around, we are still full, but uh, we do have several families in our church who are not here because of illness. It seems to be going around still. Uh, most people in this room, as I'm looking around, you've already come through your bouts of sickness in the last few weeks, so you're now immune and you're here. Amen. So pray... What's that? Knock on wood. Knock. On. So be, I pray, uh, pray for those who are not here. If are there any children that need to be dismissed at this time? They may go. Who's going to be taking them out today? Is April? No, Colleen will be taking them out. Well, God bless you guys. Um, well, echoing or just encouraging you, please look around and see who is not here today. Uh, the legates are not here. We just found out they're sick at home. Uh, Carl is at home sick. Is that right? Um, is Lisa Gentry is still not well, um, so please be praying for those who are not here. Uh, reach out to them if you think of that this week, and let them know you miss them. Amen. Amen. Turn with me, please, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter twenty-one. As we continue through this wonderful gospel, we are last week we looked at Matthew twenty-one uh, verses one through eleven, as Jesus enters into Jerusalem. That. Palm Sunday, the the final week of his life, um, and that triumphal royal entry into the holy city. And today we're going to be uh, looking at further Jesus' authority. The idea that Jesus was meek is absolutely supported in Scripture. He was meek. But likewise, uh, the idea that Jesus was firm and he was strong is also supported in Scripture. And the passage we're going to be reading today, we're going to see an an example of that strength and the authority that Christ possessed. Uh, These final chapters of Matthew from chapter 21 all the way to the end of chapter 28, really Matthew now shifts his tone to really encourage the reader in Jesus' authority. His divine authority, but also his human authority over all human institutions that come and worship the Lord. The Lord established the temple for a place of worship and honor. And Jesus now enters into that temple and he shows his divine authority and his priestly authority in that place. I mean, the 21st chapter of Matthew, it began with, again, Jesus' triumphal entry. Entered the city and the takeaway again from last week from Matthew 21, actually verse 10, is that his arrival, it stirred the crowds. When he arrived in the city, he stirred the crowds outside of the city. But then those citizens within the walls of the city of Jerusalem were shocked. Who is this? They asked. I want us to begin as we look at Matthew 21, 12 and 13 to understand that Jesus did not arrive quietly here in Jerusalem. I mean, he was intentionally public in all that he did this last week of his life. The final chapters of Matthew's gospel are going to clearly show his authority. And as we look here, and when you look back in verse 10, when, when Jesus' authority arrives, there's going to be a stark difference between those who react to him. Those who are indifferent, like the citizens of Jerusalem, when they are indifferent to God, they, their their apathy will be clear. But contrast that with the praise of the crowds outside of the city gates as they sang praises in Hosanna to the highest. What we're going to see here, this exercise of authority here. Jesus, his authority is shown as he overturns tables and he purges the temple of corruption. And this is only the first of many scenes in this final week in Jerusalem. And this exercise of authority that Jesus has will have eternal ramifications and will fulfill prophecies of the Old Testament, further revealing who Jesus was. So if you're able to stand, will you stand with me as we read Matthew 21, and I want to read verses 10 through 14, but I want to focus our time today on verses 12 through thir- 12 and 13. Matthew 21, beginning in verse 10. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer. But... You make it a den of robbers or a den of thieves. Verse 14, and the blind man in the lane came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And I do thank you, Father, that you have used your servant Matthew to show us and to express to us the divine authority and even the human authority that your son possesses. Lord, this scene is one of of violence, but it is one of great authority and purpose and so, God, I pray that you would show us today in your word that the scene where Jesus is purging your holy temple, that you would allow us to see what you intend here. What, what, why did Jesus do this? Why did you call all prophets to prophesy of this coming Messiah and then to show this event here? What does this mean? So, Lord, I, I pray that you would open our hearts this morning. You would cause us to see your word clearly. But Lord, I also pray that that you would use this time to edify your body, to show us, Father, where we stand before you. Do we have clutter in our hearts, in our lives? Are there things that Jesus will purge in order to set up inside us? We are your temple, Father. And, And so I pray that you would cause this time in your word to resonate in our minds and our hearts. Speak to us now, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. I've always found this scene of Jesus in the temple troubling. Honestly, I've always found it a bit troubling. Why did Jesus react with such aggression and violence in the house of God? I mean, the answer is obvious when Jesus cites the prophet Jeremiah here in verse 13. But let's think about this. The answer to why Jesus does this is obvious. When he says in verse 13, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of thieves or a den of robbers. I mean, in John's gospel, now we have to remember, this scene is, is, is found in all four gospels, but John's gospel account has Jesus not citing Jeremiah and Isaiah, but also the Psalm of David, wherein Jesus says, zeal for your house will consume me. I mean, that tells us why Jesus was doing this. He had zeal for his father's house. And when he sees that this house of prayer had been turned into a den of thieves, he had to, with all authority, purge what was there. I mean, John's account of this scene tells us that Jesus made a whip of cords. We don't see this in Matthew's account, but but John's account says that Jesus made a whip of cords by which he drove out all the sheep and the oxen and all of them who corrupted the house of God. That's in John chapter 2, verse 15. Now, one might argue that Jesus' humanity was on display here. If you and I were violent as Jesus was violent, we would be seen as failing somehow, but, but, but we, because we let our temper get the best of us sometimes, but that's not what Jesus is doing here. I don't think Jesus' temper was out of control. I mean, when we lose control, it is clearly the opposite of one of the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5, right? One of the fruits of the Spirit of Galatians 5 is self-control. Jesus was in full control of this time. I don't think he lost his temper in a sinful way here at all. He was clearly showing his authority of who he was. He had the right to purge the temple. But look here at verse 12, Matthew 21, verse 12. And Jesus, this is following his arrival in Jerusalem on that that Sabbath or that Sunday, that first day of the week, the, the, the Palm Sunday. Now, this is the Monday after, and Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He had purpose. First act as he arrived in Jerusalem was to purge the house of God of all the corruption that was there. Matthew's account merely tells us that Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought the temple. There's not much else. There's not not many... There's not much more detail here. It's very simple. He merely says that Jesus entered the temple and he just drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. I mean, certainly Jesus had entered Jerusalem before though. This was not the first time he had been there. Uh, Jesus had even been in the temple before. We know this because in Luke chapter two, verse 22, uh, Luke tells us that Joseph and Mary brought him, Jesus to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord when he was an infant in obedience to the law, because the law said, for the firstborn son shall be called holy to the Lord. And they were following the law there. They came to the temple then. Even in Luke chapter 2, uh, actually Luke 2.41 tells us that when Jesus was around 12 years old, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And that when Jesus again was 12, remember that? He was lost to his parents on one of those annual journeys. So we have clear evidence here that Jesus, it it, it must have been a regular occurrence for Jesus to come to Jerusalem for the Passover, an annual event. So it would not have been a stretch to conclude that when Jesus entered Jerusalem this time in Matthew 21 on that beast of burden, he was accustomed to visiting the city and the temple. This was not the first time he had been there. And all four Gospels, again, speak of the cleansing of the temple of all the commercial corruption that was there. And John's Gospel records the temple purging event in chapter 2 following the first miracle of the Cana wedding. Now, if we read this in a chronological manner, one might conclude that Jesus cleansed the temple in the beginning of his ministry, right after the, the, the wedding miracle in Cana, Um at the beginning of his ministry, and then twice, the second time again at the end of his ministry. There's actually two schools of thought here on this issue. There's two schools of thought. Some argue that Jesus purged the temple at least twice. Once at the beginning of his ministry and again at the end. Some argue that Jesus only cleansed the temple once here at the end of his ministry. There's two schools of thought here. One argument states that because John's gospel records the event following the first miracle in Cana, then Jesus must have cleansed the temple as one of his first acts of ministry. But then one cannot ignore the records of the three synoptic gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, and Luke are different. That Jesus cleansed the temple upon his arrival during his final Passion Week. So the conclusion in one argument is that Jesus must have cleansed the temple at least twice in his ministry. Others argue that the placement of the temp this event, this cleansing of the temple, by John in his gospel at the beginning of the gospel account and just after the Cana wedding miracle. So others argue that John use, does this only as a literary device to set a theme for the gospel account of Jesus' ministry. In other words, one argument is that John's gospel is not really chronological. Um. And the argument here says that there is no Greek structure in John 2. When you look at the Greek and the grammar, there's no Greek grammar there to suggest that there's a chronological direct timeline that from Cana to Jerusalem was one event or uh, coinciding events. Some will argue that. So I personally hold to the argument. This is me. And there's others in this room that I've talked to who disagree with me. Uh, that the argument that Jesus only cleansed the temple one time, that's where I'm coming at it. And I've been told, it's okay, you can be wrong, Brian. (laughs) Um, I do not see that the gospels show conclusively that Jesus cleansed the temple more than once. I mean, although we cannot, I mean, we cannot ignore the fact that the gospels clearly show us that Jesus was in Jerusalem for the Passover many times in his life. I personally, when I look at, All four gospels on this event, I can't, I can't come to the conclusion that he purged the temple more than once. Because I think John's gospel, the way John structures his gospel, it's more literary and the synoptic gospels tend to be more chronological. Now, you can talk to me afterwards and have a deacon's meeting and get rid of me if you want. I just can't go there that Jesus cleansed the temple more than once. Now, when I say this, I'm disagreeing with John MacArthur. That may get me fired at right there. Okay. John MacArthur holds the account, uh, holds the, the position that Jesus cleansed the temple at the beginning of his ministry and at the end of his ministry. I just don't know we have enough evidence to support that. Uh, and we can disagree on that. It's not going to harm our salvation. Okay. If that makes sense. Um, but. But we gotta think about this. I mean, but we can't can't ignore the fact that clearly in the Gospels, Jesus was in Jerusalem for the Passover many times in his life and many times in his ministry. Yet, yet of all these times, Jesus came to the Jerusalem temple. Was the temple always pure and a house of prayer? In other words, does Matthew's account tell us that when Jesus entered this time, he was shocked? I don't think so. I mean, certainly Jesus watched the corruption of God's house his entire life. And I'm certain that Jesus, you know, Jesus was there at the beginning of all creation. Jesus watched all of human history and watched the corruption of his house throughout all those centuries and generations. Certainly he was disgusted each time his family worshipped in the holy city at Passover. Certainly he was disgusted every time he brought his disciples to Jerusalem at the Passover. So why did Jesus become violent this time? I mean, I'm confident in the reading of God's Word that Jesus had purpose here in arriving in Jerusalem in the manner He did on this occasion for the purpose of fulfilling the Old Testament prophets. I mean, His mission to purge the hearts of men from the guilt of their sin was coming to a climax here. Verse 12, when Jesus entered the temple... He saw that God's house had become a house of commerce. It says there in verse 12, he saw all who sold and bought in the temple. I mean, Jesus declared himself to be both king and priest, remember? Who had the right to preside over the temple and the worship of God. Not only was Jesus openly proclaiming his royalty when he arrived in Jerusalem, when you Remember when he arrived at the gates of Jerusalem as he came on that donkey that previous day, he was proclaiming his royalty. Now Jesus openly declares himself the rightful high priest who has the right to oversee the conduct of the temple. You see what he's doing here? He's got purpose here. By driving out all who sold and bought, Jesus is clearly publicly proclaiming his authority to do so. He's got the right I mean, this authority comes from God, the father to the son. And God had conferred upon Jesus, his son, the office of priest with authority and responsibility to purify the temple. And at the same time to declare to all who witnessed it that the worship of God had become corrupted. And by a disgraceful abuse of apathy and and convenience, they had polluted God's house. What was here? Apathy is here. Convenience is here. Commerce is here. And they had corrupted the holiness of the Lord's temple. I mean, we must ask why the level of commerce was present here. I mean, the answer fell squarely upon really sinful convenience of men. That's why the market was there. That's why the temple had become so corrupted with commerce. I mean, the custom of keeping a market... I mean, it relieved travelers to Jerusalem of the burden of locating sacrifices. Imagine this. Having to drag a goat or a sheep all the way to Jerusalem merely for the purpose of a sacrifice. Or if you were extremely poor, where were you going to find a pair of doves or pigeons to present to the priest for sacrificial atonement? I would think it'd be easier to handle, or to handle a lamb or a goat along the road than it would be to trap a couple of birds when you get to the city. That'd be difficult, wouldn't it? Imagine as well, I mean, this was a time of the Passover. You had a lot of pilgrims showing up here. Imagine traveling from a place where your home currency would not be accepted at the temple. Let's say that you came into Sovereign Grace Baptist Church this morning and you didn't have the right American currency to give an offering to the Lord. Do we now set up an exchange booth back here in the back and do a do an exchange of currency here so that you can give to the Lord? But that was the idea here in the temple. I mean, wouldn't the convenience of a monetary exchange booth benefit the operation of the temple coffers? Of course. Maybe some of you want to start giving Bitcoin to the church. I don't know. Please don't. <laughs> um, we want the church doors to stay open, so please don't give us Bitcoin. Okay? But you see, the, you see so the idea of, of, of convenience was at the root here. I mean, clearly God did not authorize this type of market in the open of the temple court. This was the court of the Gentiles outside of the Holy of Holies, where even Gentiles were welcome to come and gather in the open court to pray. The market was established in this area purely out of convenience and really excessive greed of the priesthood. That's why it was there. I mean, it was by the priestly authority that an open market developed in the open court of the temple only for the convenience of the pilgrims, but also for the purse of the priests. They were they were getting a cut. That's why the priest authorized it. They actually oversaw it. (laughs) I mean, here's how corrupt the market became. Apparently, the court of the Gentiles within the temple grounds was where this market was. And the reasoning was that if Gentiles were permitted in this outer court, then clearly anything could be permitted. That was the reasoning. I mean, the the, the court had become a religious marketplace operated under the authority of the high priest Ananias, right? He was a corrupt priest who saw the temple and his high position as a means of personal power and wealth. Matter of fact, there are ancient references when you study this. There are ancient uh, historical records referring to the bazaar of Ananias. The bazaar. That was his bazaar. Referring to all the two common knowledge of, I mean, everybody knew who this market belonged to. It was called his bazaar. Merchants bought rights. This is what happened. Merchants who were there bought rights to a concession booth for selling sacrificial animals, for selling wine, oil, or salt, or even for the exchange of money because there was an acceptable currency alone that was used in temple offerings. So you had to buy the right for your booth here. And the high priest got a cut. According to Levitical law, any animal approved by the priests could be offered in the temple. The, again, it had to be the animal had to be approved by the priest. They had to justify, they had to con- confirm that the, the animal was without blemish, remember? And the chief priest made certain that animals not purchased in this bazaar or this market. Oh, they're going to be rejected. Oh, you didn't buy it in the marketplace? Well, we can't guarantee that it was right, that it's pure. So once you go down to the market, we've already vetted those. They're pure. They're they're ready to go. You buy one from there, it's good to go. You see how it works? Yet clearly the the, the animals purchased in the market were more expensive. I mean, the the price of the animals purchased in the market has been, uh, some records say, was elevated tenfold over the normal purchase price of an animal anywhere else. That's how expensive this was. Additionally, I, I, and even when there was the exchange of money, the currency exchange in the temple currency, there was a 25% fee to do that. You know, like these cash checking places here in town? I don't think even they do 25%. I've never used a place like that. I don't know. But you, you see what I'm saying? That's what's happening here. But consider the problem. This, the problem goes deeper. If one comes to the temple as a pilgrim at Passover seeking to worship God in pure prayer, I mean, if you're a pilgrim and you have the heart of integrity and you want to worship the Lord correctly here, you you might purposefully leave behind any extra weight or any extra material possessions so that you can get there without any distraction. Has anybody ever been like on a spiritual weekend or a retreat some kind and or maybe you just carve out a day in the week, you want to get away from it all to pray? Y'all ever do that? I hope you do. Imagine this on a pilgrimage. So you come intentionally purging all distractions so that you can honestly worship the Lord and have spiritual focus. But yet imagine that, that this pilgrim arrives at the temple again with no intent of being distracted. They purposely left behind all material distractions. And then when you arrive here, you're suddenly surrounded by opportunities of temptation to buy whatever you wanted or needed to make the time of worship more appealing, more convenient, more comfortable. Now your your honest and, and really admirable intent of coming to the temple to worship properly has now been further distracted in the temple. Remember that Matthew's gospel tells us one other time when Jesus was at the temple. He was a guest of the tempter, Satan himself. Matthew 4, verses 5 through 6, remember, tells us that the devil took Jesus to the holy city and they stood together on the pinnacle of the temple. Jesus was tempted to show himself indestructible by jumping off of the pinnacle. Remember that scene? He was there before. I display to all that he would not suffer any harm. But, but Jesus at that temptation understood this distraction from the purpose of his sacrificial mission and he understood the purpose of the temple and the prayer that was there. He, he was there to purge the guilt of sin from all hearts of men. That was Jesus's purpose. And in his temptation with Satan, he was not going to allow that to be distracted. The same focus is at play here in Matthew 21, verse 12. When, when Jesus purges the temple of all distracting perversions, that's a good way to describe what was happening here. God's house, he says, is a place of God's presence, a place of prayer. Now prayer is the place of surrender. Prayer is an act of dependence by the one who has no answers, coming to God who does have answers. That's what prayer is. Um, the Jerusalem temple was designed by God with the intended purpose of his people coming into God's presence, or at least into the courtyard of the temple outside of the Holy of Holies, where one could pray and surrender and depend upon God. But if you come into this place that God intended for prayer and dependence and suddenly it's filled with convenience and distraction. I mean, there was also an eschatological purpose, an end times purpose to what Jesus' ministry was, and the timing of all the prophecies was, was ready to be fulfilled here as He comes into the temple. I was struck this week with the shocking and open display of prayer. Many of you, even if you don't follow football, maybe you heard it, I uh, heard about it and you saw the, the shock of prayer on a football field Monday night when DeMar Hamlin of the Buffalo Bills, remember, 24 year old man suffered cardiac arrest on the field. I think twice. They had to, they had to start his heart twice that night. Did you notice how suddenly prayer commenced around this young man's situation on national TV? They didn't cut away from it. They didn't say, uh, we have to stop the pro- uh, the, the the broadcast. Uh, this is too offensive. We don't want to offend anybody. They stayed right there and watched groups of people pray. I mean, where where there is no answer that we can give, this is when we come in prayer. When there is no hope from our own efforts to fix a desperate situation, prayer is where we go as God wants us to. That is what prayer is. I mean, that's why Monday night when, when DeMar Hamlin was in his really dangerous health situation, everyone understood the gravity of that moment. And even throughout the week, if you followed any of the news cycle on this, everyone said there was a lot of prayer. Matter of fact, I think it was on ESPN. Alive, unscripted, some hosts on ESPN sometime this week, and, and the host had to apologize. I don't know if this is right, but I'm going to pray right now. I think it was like Tuesday or Wednesday. Did you see that? So all three hosts on ESPN Live sitting at a desk said, we're going to pray right now. It wasn't in the script. And they and they didn't cut away, and they prayed. It's amazing how when it's football, it's okay to pray. <laughs> Whether you're praying for your team to win, or in this situation, a very serious situation, a young man was on almost died. So whenever we don't have answers, prayers where we go. That's why Jesus, when he comes here, he said, "You turned my, you turned my father's house into a house of thieves. My father built this for you, and look what you've done to it." And Jesus shows up with a purpose. Any distractions from depending upon God's will and God's presence is a temptation and a distortion of the original will of God. And Jesus mentions no words here, and he does not hesitate to remove all the distractions from the temple of God in the holy city. That He didn't hesitate. He goes through and does it. I mean, this purging of the temple occurred again on the Monday following the triumphal entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. It was Passover week in the city, and the city was overwhelmed with pilgrims. It wasn't just that Jesus purged the temple. He purged the temple when it was full of people, overflowing. But just as Jesus entered the city without grand. Pomp and circumstance. Remember, he comes into the city on a donkey. Here, too, Jesus showcases that God's house will not be perverted with gross celebration and elaborate things. No gimmicks were necessary. There were only tempting distractions here. Jesus' royal entry into the city was marked by simplicity and humility rather than splendor. And he comes into the temple and he sees that there is no humility and simplicity, only gross distortion. And he cleans house. I mean, Jesus' royal entry into the city shows us that he comes with simplicity and humility, which actually elevates him to a higher authority than anything else. Jesus intended to declare His royal priesthood here in the temple and His authority to remove all distractions from the holy presence of His Father is here. He intended to restore God's house to simplicity and prayer by purging out the commercial gimmicks and distractions that were there. See, You see, God, God intends His house to be a place of simplicity and prayer. It's what we strive for here at Sovereign Grace. Now, we have fun here. We're Baptists. We like to eat, right? I don't think anywhere Jesus purges the dinner table. You show me that in Scripture, we'll have a discussion. But at least here, he purges God's house of all of the gross distractions and distortions of commerce. God's house is not a place of commerce, he says. It's a place of prayer and worship. But by cleansing his father's house here, again, Jesus is demonstrating his divine mission. He's he's demonstrating his priestly authority. Jesus had such complete control of the events of this moment and that day that he would not even permit these heathens, and I'm going to use it, I'm going to use that word very kindly, these heathens, he, he purges them. He does not even allow them to take their corrupt wealth with them. In Mark's account, chapter 11, verse 16 tells us that, that he, Jesus, would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Or the King James says, and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. This tells us that Jesus would not permit these corrupt merchants to profit from the defilement of the temple. They could take none of their corrupt inventory with them. Get out of my father's house, he says. Get out. Now, let's look here at Matthew 21, 13. After he, I mean, as actually, actually 13 can, you can see verse 13 as a scene of the continuing purging and the overturning of tables and and driving out people with a whip. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. I can imagine Jesus as he's going through with the whip and he's kicking tables over and, and running people out and kicking out the animals. He's probably quoting scripture the whole time. He's quoting the Old Testament prophets every step of the way. I don't know how long it took him to do this, but I'd say every breath that came out of Jesus' mouth was like this in verse 13. That's why Matthew shows it. He's citing the Old Testament prophets. He said to them, it is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers and thieves. Matthew, again, he, he once again, he shares the prophetic connection to these events of Jesus' ministry. Remember, we've seen that pattern in Matthew's gospel. He's he's connecting the, the ministry and the life of jesus to the old testament prophets all throughout his gospel no different here all that jesus did fulfilled every prophecy expressed centuries before his arrival i mean i think it's beneficial if we take the time to review the meaning of of what we're seeing here is jeremiah's prophecy and isaiah's prophecy in this one quote on this day when jesus purged the temple i think it's i think it's beneficial for us to break down what jeremiah said and isaiah said to get a deeper understanding of what jesus is doing here y'all ready for that I mean, Jesus proclaims the words of Jeremiah and Isaiah. We're going to look at Isaiah 56 first if you want to flip there. Remember, Jeremiah and Isaiah were two of the greatest prophets concerning the coming of the King of Kings, the coming of the Messiah. The prophecies of Isaiah and and Jeremiah both, they focused on the promise of God that the corruption of Israel's worship would be cleansed by God himself and that God would restore the connection between his created and their creator. If you flip over to Isaiah 56, Isaiah 56 tells us this, verses 6 through 7. Isaiah 56 speaks of salvation for the Gentiles that's coming. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord and to be His servants, Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, verse seven, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. That's the intent of what Jesus is saying here in Matthew twenty-one thirteen. My house will be a house of prayer for all peoples. But notice those who are accepted in this house of prayer. It is those who come with an, an, a, a, pre, a purified intent and hearts. It says, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, those will be the ones that the Lord accepts in, he will accept their worship because they come with a purified intent. They keep the Sabbath. They do not profane it. They do not distort it. And God says, you are coming to my presence with honorable intent. I will honor your worship by coming to you. That's what Isaiah says. And that's what Jesus is citing here when he says, I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. He wants his house of prayer to be joyful, and the burnt offerings and the sacrifices people bring will be acceptable, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. If God's house is not a house of prayer, whatever is brought, God makes it very clear in Isaiah 56, it will not be acceptable. How does this cause you to think about this day of worship, folks? What Isaiah prophesied agreed with the circumstances of Jesus when he arrived at the temple. Isaiah 7 predicted the calling of the Gentiles to God's house and they would be welcome. Isaiah promised that God would grant not only that the people would net, would, would recover its original splendor, that the temple would be restored back to its glorious splendor of worship after the Babylonian exile. That's the context of Isaiah 56, is that when you come back out of exile, God will restore the glory of his temple and the worship of his people. But all nations would flow to it after this. I mean, God intended for his temple to be a focus for the eyes of all his worshipers. Those who come to worship in God's house should have a focus on God and how wicked it was to profane it, to distort it, to pollute it by turning it into a marketplace of distraction. I mean, prayer is intended as worship. That's what's happening here in the temple. Yes, you come to pray, but that prayer is intended as worship. It, that place of prayer was the highest form of worship. When Jesus says, but you have made a den of robbers and thieves in Matthew twenty-one twelve. And 13. Here our Lord cites the prophet. If you flip back over there in Matthew 21, he now cites Jeremiah 7. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. That den of robbers is referring actually to Jeremiah 7:11. But we're going to read a little bit more than that, okay? If you flip over to Jeremiah 7, again, Jesus cites the prophet Jeremiah as long as well as he cited Isaiah. Remember, Jeremiah stood at the gates of the Lord's house when he cited this in Jeremiah 7. He's, he was standing at the gates of the Lord's house when he says this. Imagine what Jesus is now echoing. Verse 2 of Jeremiah 7, Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, and if you drop down to verse 11 of Jeremiah 7, Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. There is nothing that the Lord does not see, even the corruption, especially the corruption of his house of prayer. And so that's what Jeremiah 7 is saying. You think that you're doing your own thing that pleases me, but I see your corruption. You cannot hide from it. Then in Jeremiah 7, dropping down to verse 14 and 15. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name in which you trust and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers as I did in Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. So Jeremiah 7, clearly, I mean, it's talking about, God is saying, I'm going to purge my house of all of the corrupt nations who are there and all of those who have invaded and taken you off into exile. I'm going to purge out their polluted hearts. But Jesus is citing this in context with what he's doing as fulfillment of that. Jesus says, I am purging the hearts of corrupt men here so that my house of prayer will be what God intended. Jesus had authority to do this. I mean, you see, it's common that hypocrites will change the truth of God into a lie. That's the very root of corruption and distortion of sin. We we take the truth of God and we distort it and we justify our sin. That's what happened here in the temple court with the marketplace. They took God's law, they took the truth of God and justified then setting up a, comm- a commerce center in the middle of the temple. Oh, we can do this. If the Gentiles can come in, this is the court of the Gentiles, what else can come in? That was the beginning of the slippery slope. And Jesus purges it. But He does so. The reason Matthew shares this with us in Matthew 21 again is to show us Jesus' authority of fulfilling all of the Old Testament prophecies about Him as well. I mean, the prophet Jeremiah proclaimed that God was not bound to the temple, nor was God tied to the ceremonies. The corrupted residents of God's temple in Jerusalem, I'm sorry, in Jeremiah's day, had boasted, they had boasted falsely of the name of the temple, placing their trust in the grandeur of the temple and the sources of its riches. In other words, even God's house had been distorted by God's people they place their trust in God's temple and the worship rather than in God himself. By doing so, they turn God's house into a den of thieves. I mean, thieves, think about this. Thieves sin greatest while they're in their dens. What happens in their dens? That's where they plot their exploits and their crimes. And and that's also where they hoard their plunder. You know, superheroes have their, their superhero cave or something Thieves have their den, and that's where they plan and plot, and that's where they hoard all of their plunder. So this is the great, this is the source or the place of their greatest sin. They trust that when they're in their den, they'll escape judgment, and they put their trust in their little sanctuary of 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 crime so much so that they think they're deceiving God. The den here is the home of all corruption. That's why when Jesus says, you have made my house or made my father's house a den of robbers, you have made this place a center of corruption and sin, thinking that you're safe, but you're not. By purging the temple of corruption, I think Jesus... He took away whatever was at odds with the reverence and the majesty of God's temple. And I think, therefore, of God's right worship that is due him. He purged all those things that took the right form of worship away from God. He purged it so that the right form of worship would commence again. That was part of Jesus' ministry and his calling. That's why, that's the, the very center of his life. Now, how do we conclude this? How do we take this home? How many of us have hearts that are truly dens where thieves hold up? It's where we hold our deepest sins and our secrets, to, hoping that God won't see it. How many of us have that? Do we have a den within our hearts, a den of thieves within us? How many of us do not approach the worship of God with reverence and with right honor? Let's just be honest. You don't have to raise your hand, but ask yourself this question. How many of you on Sunday mornings coming to worship are in such a mad rush that once you get here, you're in such a a tizzy of a state that you really are not in the mindset of worship? How many of us are distracted in God's house or even coming to God's house? What are you doing, preparing your hearts as you come to worship and pray in God's house? How, what, what are you doing to prepare your hearts to be purified and focused on the right thing—God Himself and His Son Jesus Christ? Are you preparing for that? Are you teaching your children how to prepare for that? I want to. I want to. Can I just be a pastor for a minute, parents? Parents, turn off the iPads and the Game Boys and, and the and the commercial, secular stuff for your kids. Especially before you come to worship. Turn it off. It bothers me to know in that family vans are now a place where children can be mesmerized and zombied into watching a little tiny screen right here, and they're not even focused on reality. What's that doing to their hearts and their souls? Are we teaching them to come to the house of the Lord properly? I mean this text is the basis of how the church needs to conduct its worship, I think. I mean Christ alone, his will and he does, he purges the hearts of his faithful from all distraction and all disrespect. I mean, likewise, we as church should also purge from the function of this of his church of any forms of worldly distraction that pulls the attention away from our Father God. I mean that's that I think here at Sovereign Grace that is purposefully in our our structure, we, we, we intentionally guard this house of worship away from all commercial distraction. We try our best to do that. Amen. We would rather people who come here to worship with this community of believers to come with the pure intent or at least see the pure intent when they get here. It's not mean that we're always perfect, but at least Jesus has shown us here in this text what is not perfect. And this is why we purposely and and we're cautious here of any commercialization of this house and of our worship. We don't want to commercialize it. This is why when we conduct evangelism, we do so with the word of God rather than commercialized temptations. Whenever we we speak about God's word and we do Bible studies, we want it to be the word of God, not some commercialized temptation. Folks, even even in Christian circles, let's just be honest, there is a Great marketplace of Christian literature and Bible studies that are in the billions. Just because it's popular in the marketplace doesn't mean it follows God's word. How many churches, megachurches, I think, are guilty of this? And we, we can we can all blame megachurches because Sovereign Grace is not a megachurch, right? I mean, how many megachurches place their hope in the extravagance of an event rather than the holiness of the Savior? I mean, we joke around here. From the very beginning, we've always joked around here that we're going to pull the smoke and fog machines out for worship and have a, you know, a concert. But we joke because we know we'll never do that. I mean, it seems that if Jesus rightly purged God's temple with force. I mean, this was serious. He does this with force and he does it with high priestly authority. I think we should pay close attention here. We should not take this lightly. Um, what might we be tempted to replace our Lord with in the worship in His Father's house? What might we, what, what, what might we replace Christ with here? I mean, let, let us all take from this text the right understanding of Jesus' authority. He will purge His house of all corruption. He will. I mean, this means that He will purge all corrupted people too. That's what He did here. And then He will purge all corrupted plans He will purge all corrupted ideas and he will purge all secular forms uh, that that are meant to attract warm bodies for the sake of warm bodies in the house, for the sake of our self-serving pride. Jesus will purge that. I mean, let's take from this text the truth that Jesus was granted and he still has the authority to purge all sin and corruption from his church. Beginning with the hearts of his people. And then it plays out in the function and the worship of his church. Let us be humble and stand in awe as he does this in us. He starts with us. We must stand in awe and reverence as Jesus will purge from his people that he loves all corrupted distractions that steer us away from him. I mean, I wish to close, let's close with this. I want to close with the words of David in Psalm 69. Can you flip over there? Psalm 69. The reason I do this is because John's gospel attributes these words to what Jesus declared as he purged the temple of corruption. Psalm 69. I will close with this. There won't be nothing more. Beginning of verse 5. This is a prayer of David to the Lord. Oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me. So there in verse 5 and 6, David is praying, Dear Lord, don't let me be the distraction that steers people away from you. You seeing that? How many of us have been guilty of being the distractor? Then in verse 7, For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. Verse 9, For zeal for your house has consumed me. Psalm 69, 9 is what Jesus cites in John chapter 2. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Jesus took seriously his ministry and his calling. And he took upon himself the approach of these people in the temple who had corrupted God's house. He took that corrupted sin from them upon himself and with his authority he purges it from God's house. That's the gospel, folks. Does Jesus not take upon himself our corruption and leads us to holy reverence and worship to the Father? That's what He's doing here in the temple, guys. May the zeal of our Lord's house and for His gospel be our zeal. If we close with nothing else, take that away. Amen? Come on, Father. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for Your Word. Lord, this scene and this true event where Jesus, Your Son, purges Your house of prayer and of worship lord he He shows us the seriousness of your holiness and of our place as your people, dear God. We have failed you in many ways, many that we recognize and many that we are blind to, in ways that we come to your to your presence and give you the right worship that you deserve and so God, I do pray, and we echo the words of your of your servant david in psalm sixty nine Lord if we, have, if we have been the distraction for anyone in their worship, if we have been the distraction for anyone coming to your throne of grace, Lord, forgive us and purge all that that is distracting from us. And Lord, please bring those to your presence despite us. Lord, we thank you for showing us the importance and the severity of the right worship that you are rightly due. I pray, God, that you would remind us to have the zeal for your house and the zeal for your gospel that we should rightly have. Lord, we live in a time that is very much like the Roman period that Jesus lived in, where distractions of commerce and glamour are all around us and it has infected your house. It has infected your people. And we we make excuses for bringing in the secular commercialization of the world into your house. And God, you don't want it. And so, dear God, I do pray that you would forgive us when we failed you in this. But I do pray, Lord, you would teach us in this too. We need you to give us that heart of worship, that zeal for worship and that zeal for your holiness. Stir us, Father, we pray.